Hello and welcome to the Rating Room Podcast. It's Jay and Andy again. We're recording another special episode today. All the way from Finland, please welcome Artu. Artu, great to have you on the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, so, yes, thank you for having me. So, yeah, I'm Artu, Artu uh, from Finland. And uh, I'm, uh, as many of my friends would tell, a massive, massive Bond fan. And uh, I am, uh, and I've uh, been that for many, many years, at least 15 years now. And uh, when I'm not being a Bond fan or a movie fan in general, uh, I work in film industry, uh, usually location management and assistant direction. So my work life and re- recreational life is very film oriented and Bond is a very treasured part of that. That's great. And it'd be interesting to see how, what, what your responses are to our questions in terms of having that film background as well. So continue with the theme of James Bond. Let's get straight into the questions. So Artu, what's your earliest Bond memory? <laughs> well, yeah, there's like, a, there's, I, I usually have a few different answers to this. And uh, one of them is the, uh, what you're asking. And one of them, uh, the other one is the more interesting one. So I'm not quite sure what's my, what my uh, earliest Bond memory actually is. It's one of those things that, like, that it's, uh, it's a series that has existed for so long that it's kind of like those osmosis things. You're kind of, um, kind of like a subjugated by it, uh, pretty much uh, right when you're out of the womb. You just don't know it yet. Um, so, but I think my earliest memory regarding Bond films was maybe I would guess, and this is just my estimation, around the year 2000, when uh, Tomorrow Never Dies came from television for the first time. Because back then, like it, it was there was a three-year gap between a theatrical release and a television release. So in the year two thousand, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies had like a, its a television premiere here in Finland, and I watched like parts of it, and uh, and I was very fascinated by the uh, the film and whatnot. But my mom was very kind of protective of my viewing habits, and the film, while it's one, of, while it's not necessarily the most violent of the uh, the films, it does include scenes of like a man falling into a printer, uh, like a newspaper printer, and being there's like bloody paper running around and bond psychopathically saying they're printing anything these days or like or like the main villain getting crushed by his own drill and whatnot so the uh i was a little bit disturbed by that and i think my mom was even more disturbed by that and in connection to that film i also i would say my my first kind of like longer standing Bond memory was regarding the Tomorrow Never Dies video game for PlayStation 1, which was my first video game that I had on PlayStation. And uh, all, one only thing that I can remember from those days is that uh, it was during a time where I still didn't have any, didn't have any video game literacy. So I had a very hard time getting past the first level or even the first area of the first level because I didn't understand how buttons work. So uh, that's that was my... Um, that was my first memories, and uh, and then it just like came came and went back and forth for years. Like I I I, I was like a Marvel. I I, I like like superheroes. I like Marvel things and Star Wars and whatnot. And Bond was just like among the pantheon of entertainment that uh, I consumed, but just like one small part of it. And uh, during the uh, around like two thousand two or whatnot, there was there was there was during the fortieth anniversary of. Uh, Bond films. Uh, the uh, the local channel three, MTV three here in Finland, had like a Bond November where they showed films from the Bond series every weekend, and um, 
uh, with the idea that like people voted what films they wanted to see. So I think the uh, the first wing had Octopussy, the second one had Goldeneye, the third one had Tomorrow Never Dies, which was the uh, number one winner, and uh, and then there was the uh, television premiere World Is Not Enough, and uh, and then there was the uh, there was kind of like this competition that if you entered you could get uh, tickets to Royal Albert Hall premiere of the other day. Um, but during that time, I saw Dr. No for the first time, didn't like it. It was boring and dry <laughs> and <laughs> terrible. And, uh, and, but then I saw like Man with the Golden Gun and whatnot. But, like, uh, but then years went by and Bond was kind of like this thing in osmosis where I didn't have that much of an opinion of it, but I had a very clear idea of it in terms of uh, what Bond for me was. And it was Pierce Brosnan. It was the uh, kind of like the, uh, the high octane adventures of the 90s and early 2000s. So then in 2005, I remember it very clearly. It was around like uh, October 2005, which was uh, like a fall holiday here in Finland. Uh, that was when I became interested in Bond again, because that was during that time Daniel Craig was introduced as the new James Bond after this few years of hiatus that had taken place. And uh, like any everyone else, I had like a massive kind of like uh, a kind of like revolting reaction, revolted reaction to it because it didn't feel right. It, it, it felt he didn't feel like uh, the choice that like anyone was pleased with at that time. And also the idea like it's going to be darker and more violent and that uh, the premise was about poker games and whatnot. I thought like that's like the dullest, sh- dullest shit I've ever heard. So I kind of retreated back to the Brosnan films and I watched those and whatnot. But then the first trailer came out of Casino Royale and uh, I was immediately hooked. It was, it was there's something about the trailer, the first teaser trailer that I saw, like, okay, this is what they're trying to do. It was, it, it was one of those things where you are given something that you do that you always wanted, but you didn't, uh, but didn't, didn't know, didn't know that you wanted. Like be, until that point, Bond was to me like a fantastical nonsense, entertaining but fantastical nonsense. Casino Royale was the film that kind of felt like it felt more tangible, felt more real. So I became so I started like really hyping up that film about like was it like six months beforehand? I had my Samsung flip phone. I had I put on my uh, punch in the date of like I had like a alarm saying that like on twenty fourth twenty fourth of November two thousand six, uh, it's going to be a premiere of this film. Like it was a week after the uh, the American premiere, which I think was November seventeenth. So I was I was like piping up, piping up, piping up. The Chris Cornell song came. I loved that, loved it. I the first this, the real trailer came out. I loved that, and uh, I was and I was trying to make sure that I any way that I could get there, get to see that film. And like I had like this little little hurdle, which was that uh, I was 13 years old at that time, and the film was uh, age restricted to 15. And so I didn't have I, I didn't have admission rights to that to see that film. So I had to beg my uh, half sister, who was much older than me, to come to see it with me because I didn't have any <laughs> fifteen and up friends. And my mom didn't want to see it. And dad, I don't think I even even asked my dad. So uh, so there were all all those things. And uh, on twenty and then the uh, the high train was coming. I was like so excited to see the film, and everything was laid out. And then the November twenty third of 2006 came and uh, then and then something happened in my banal existence that kind of um all, have always tinged the way i see that film on november 23rd 2006 um was a regular school day and uh the school day had ended uh for uh with a pe class 
um, and we what we were doing, we were on a local swimming center and and doing the uh, swimming classes and whatnot. And uh, it was like the, it was the cold, dark, gray, rainy day in a very small town in Finland. Like I'm not sure, like if the uh, or like the, the there might be like a British equivalent to the idea of like imagine like a town of like thirty thousand people like up 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 north or something like that. And when doing the uh, uh, like the the rainy kind of like early winter and whatnot. And um, the PE class ended and I started walking and I have no idea what kind of blackout I had at that time. But then I realized that I had lost my school bag. Now, and I wasn't a very uh, organized student. So uh, I didn't. So I always carried everything I have in that bag, all the school books, all the notebooks and whatnot. So which which meant that when I lose that, I will lose any kind of uh, <laughs> school related stuff I had. I tried to find it. I even called my teacher. I like, did you see it? And he said that he didn't remember. So I went back to the uh, 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 the swim center. I didn't find it there. So I went back to my school, even though I need, knew it wouldn't be there. And uh, I was just like really anxious. And like this is a very kind of banal and small kind of drama. But you have to remember, I was 13. Anyone who was 13 and lost their school back in this fashion would be kind of uh, anxious about that. So uh, so eventually I went home. And I told my mom, but I couldn't, I wouldn't dare to tell my dad, like he would rip my head off if he found out that what, what kind of irresponsible thing I had done. So, but I, so I was trying to calm myself and I went, went to sleep and uh, woke up very early in the next morning, like relatively early, meaning like I woke up, woke up like six in the morning and uh, went to school like hour earlier, around seven to look for it again. And it wasn't there. And the school day, school day started, and I literally had nothing on me. I didn't have any books. I didn't have any notepads. I didn't have any pencils and whatnot. So I had to kind of like in this pathetic or like embarrassing fashion, I had to just like piggyback of my friends all through the whole class of like just reading from their books, and then they and my teacher and uh, lending their pens, and then like my teacher just like giving me like A4 paper from the printer to, to write down. It's just like crushing them putting it in my pockets it was a nightmare and uh around like um uh, during the uh, midday after the lunch break i wanted to take my mind off the situation i did i did some like foot uh, soccer playing football play, uh, playing in the uh, classroom and i but i i think i sli- slipped and fell into like a puddle and like got myself wet and it was kind of like i was so tired and so anxious and during and this was also during a time when a girl that i really liked had <laughs> started dating one of my friends i was just like love lost uh, kind of like in the gr- uh, boy, a love lost boy in the grips of puberty, trying to kind of like uh, just to get my mind, uh, kind of, kind of my pick my mind up, and but luckily the day was quite uh, short, and uh, I went back again to the swimming center to see like what if it was still there. I just tried if it was still there. During that time, the flip phone told me that the film premiere is today, and I was like, ah, okay, I don't. <laughs> I, I can't think of that. I've been waiting for that day for six months and I, I couldn't be bothered. So the, uh, but then I realized during that time, like I maybe had made a stop, a small stop during that three, after leaving the PE class. And I found my school back right next to the swimming center on a staircase that was leading up to a, uh, a baseball field uh, or like a Finnish baseball field. And, uh, I think my te- I, my, I informed my teacher about this, who was my PE teacher at that been yesterday. And he said, oh, yeah, I think I remember it was somewhere there, which I 
think he was lying. And uh, and I found it, and no one had taken it. Like one of the perks of living in a small Finnish town, like they tend to be quite uh, inherently honest in their actions. So if, if something is lost, it's it's you can generally count on it. No one's going to steal it, especially if it's a school bag. So I found the bag. I looked through it. Everything was there, but like, I had my watercolors there. So had they, and the bag was wet, so everything had bled through my notes and my uh, um, uh, uh, books and whatnot. So it was quite crummy looking, but it was still there. And I was just, my, the relief was so considerable. And uh, then I went home. It was like around like 4.30 or like four, and I went, but and then I just remember the ritual. Like I went home, I got went to the uh, the shower and just like washed all the days of stress away. I put on some better clo- better clothes that I had, and then my mom had left, giving giving me kind of like this clandestine, you know, kind of like this uh, mission of like going to her, that I had to go to her offices after hours and pick an envelope with my name on it with my sister who had to have sister who had just uh, came and had had come and pick me up and uh i went there and he came and i found the uh the envelope it was kind of like breaking and entering situation which was very on brand for the evening and uh the envelope had 40 euros which was most money i had ever seen <laughs> during that time and um then we went and then we went to the local cinema got great tickets i got like the uh the coke uh, like the Coke Zero uh, cans uh, for uh, the, for the uh, viewing experience uh, for free, which was I think so great. The ticket was a little bit more expensive than normal, but that just added to the uh, uh, experience. And then I just sat down, and my whole world at that time was had been literally black and white. Like it's the uh, it was during that year and that place that time it was literally black and white and there was this kind of there was this there was this poetic feeling of the film starting in black and white and they were giving us kind of like this new very kind of fresh and interesting and dangerous version of this character and after the initial like three minutes it like kicks in the gear and and the film and I felt like my world turned into color. And uh, I was completely raptured. I was because like um, I had been so tired and kind of so beaten down by the uh, kind of like my worries and my banal worries and my kind of like sense of kind of like powerlessness during those last few days that this world of great adventure, the, uh, the, the world of best food and best drink, the beautiful women, the exotic locations and the central, central masculine character who just can make everything fair in the world that he exists in was absolutely cathartic. It was an absolute kind of like a shot in the arm of like, just like wonderful escapism that I, I, uh, that, uh, that I could have hoped for. And uh, yeah, I, but I saw the film, got back home. My friend came, uh, came over for a sleepover. And, uh, but I think it was a pretty um, kind of like unsatisfying night for him because the moment I got home, I immediately crashed and went and slept for like <laughs> like a day and a half after that because I was kind of done for the day. But yeah, that's my. It's a long story, but I think it's a cute story, and I think it's a. It's what it makes Casino Royale and I think Bond series in as as an extension one of or the only film series in my entire life that is kind of like stamped into my DNA. Like I can't what, see it completely objectively. Like it's just they're baked into my being i'm sorry for the long answer <laughs> no no that that's great um i know you said you work in the film um industry you could make a little short film about that because that's your that's your little mission isn't it or everything happened before and get into the bond 
at the cinema. Yeah, maybe. And uh, and does, the, does kind uh, of feel like your the origin story. <laughs> maybe, maybe in a sense, yeah. And I and I think the reason why it kind of like that story kind of like resonated has resonated with me after uh, in the years afterwards because when I came became more aware of the the history of the film series and history of the book series, and I and I found out in my later years in my adult years, which uh, kind of like I had like this renaissance of Bond fandom in my early adulthood when I came to realize what made Ian Fleming, what, what inspired Ian Fleming to write this story and story. And it was, and it, I, and I just felt like they were kind of like this small, but kind of like uh, little elements that made me kind of relate to his experience in writing this character, which was that like he was, he lived in the uh, kind of like the, um, the post-World War England, which was still kind of like feel, uh, where rations were still at place and the, uh, the general kind of gray atmosphere loomed over and he escaped that by going to the Jamaica uh, every summer and uh, then when, when he realized that he had to marry his uh, long-time lover he kind of like uh, exercised his kind of like fantasies to this character so it was his his way the, the writing of those books was his way of kind of like uh, it, it, it was his escape it was his way of kind of like actualize the uh, the things that he desired and uh, like I and I'm I'm just a passive viewer, but I kind of relate to that idea. <laughs> and to me, it's kind of like a if there's like one way to kind of like hone into the idea of like how, uh, like the uh, the, the the thing about Bond that makes him kind of like how to if if there's one way to get the character of Bond and the series of Bond, I think that's a great way to think about it. Like it's a it's a it's a fan it's an escapist fantasy for. A man for for like a for an Englishman who is kind of like coming to terms with his own aging and kind of like the banalities of uh, mortality and banality of kind of like uh, family life. Yeah. That's great, thank you. And now, my next question was going to be, what is your favorite Bond film? But I think I know the answer. But just confirm for me, what what would you say is your favorite Bond film? Yes, uh, yeah. Well, it's of course it's Casino Royale. I think it's it kind of has to be, even though if I objectively wouldn't think it's the uh, best best in the series i think it has to be my favorite i don't think it's a perfect film i do think it has some kind of like uh <clears throat> pacing issues and i think some of the character stuff doesn't quite work and this is just me saying after after like this is just me saying this after like like 40 or 50 viewings i've had in the last 15 years but i think like the reason why i do still kind of like if i would have to argue its merits as a film. I think the reason why I really love it, and I think why it really kind of like is the uh, uh, kind of like the high point of the Craig era, is that I felt that during the Craig era, even because even though I would say like I like three of the five films made, with and like the other three, two that I really enjoyed were Skyfall and uh, No Time to Die. I did feel that with those films, given that like the time had because they were so the the uh, time between the film releases were so long um it felt like uh, it felt like and also the nostalgia elements kind of crept into the series it felt like the, those two other films were very eager to please the audience it felt like they tried to give everything that the audience audience might want from this film series which i think kind of i don't know it's it's kind of a hard thing to kind of like articulate what makes it kind of tough but it feels kind of mm, I don't want to say desperate, but it feels more laborious. Uh, but I th and with Casino Royale, I think it's a film that is made with in absolute confidence. Uh, 
because and this was during the time when the film series had no reason to be confident. The uh, Craig, uh, casting of Craig was very controversial. It was a story that was inherently kind of like low in kind of like high octane action. It was very it was such a departure of the film uh, film series at that time. So I. I'm completely sure that if the producer did, the producers didn't have that much faith and that much control over the film, and it was like, for example, uh, and there was more authority with some kind of like big studio uh, regarding this film, I'm pretty sure that like the producers would have panicked after the reaction to casting of Craig and tried and would have forced the film to include elements that would pander to the. Um, a long time fast like we have we've got to have gadgets we've got to have like set up and uh, set up jokes and we got to have like fantasy and uh, uh like and like whatever kind of like this and they like it's kind of like make it more like Pierce Brosnan films and whatnot and the film doesn't do that it knows exactly what it's trying to do and it's and it does it very well like my favorite portion in the whole series film is the portion between the uh, when when Bond goes to Montenegro for the first time, we and the and it starts with Bond meeting Vesper, and and then it ends when Bond and for, when the first hand is dealt in the poker game. That's a fourteen minute uh, space of time that just reads. There, it's just lifestyle. It's just people meeting. Uh, it's about drink. It's about locations. It's about banter and whatnot. It doesn't try to kind of. Uh, it it doesn't try. It's not scared or nervous about its own content. It trusts its, itself so much, and I think that's the uh, thing that makes that film very special to me. Like it's this, it's the sheer confidence and clarity of vision that carries through the uh, the whole film. So you, you've just talked about your favorite film. So let's look at the polar opposite. What is your worst film? Yes. Uh, well, I have to maybe. Um, I, I'm I'm trying to keep my answers maybe a bit shorter, but uh, I, I'm gonna say like I, I don't. It, it kind of changes my 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 kind of like my least favorite kind of change changes every uh, every now and then. Like I would say maybe like like live like I like Man with the Golden Gun. I think is generally the worst in the series because I think it's um it has a good villain, but I think it's a kind of like badly paced film. It's uh, I think it's a film that unlike Casino Royale, feels very uncertain and insecure in itself. Uh, I think it has the worst Bond performance, given the crudeness of uh, Roger Moore's acting uh, or, or, or his characterization of the film. And like, and I, I have a very kind of like hard time accepting the, uh, the, the way the female characters are handled in that film. But, um, I, but, but I'm going to say like a film that I think kind of like screws its own premise the worst uh and or like it kind of squanders its own potential was specter from 2015 and uh i think it's and it's and but it's it's not like it's the worst film but i think it's uh well i think in execution i think it had leaves a lot to be desired it's way too long it's the uh, the tension isn't quite there it feels very paper thin it feels very rote and i think like craig himself i i kind of feel that like they had they made some kind of miscalculation in how the director and the actor made some miscalculation how to perform the role in that film because i think people people say that like craig felt craig seemed bored in that film i don't think he was necessarily bored i think he was trying to channel this kind of general sean connery like coolness but that kind of translated as him being kind of like uh distant and kind of uh tired 
and also he had a, like a like a traumatic knee injury, so that might have done something with that. But I think the main problem with Spectre, why it doesn't really work, is a fun, is that unlike with No Time to Die, where like Bond dying was a like a risk decision, but that did fundamental in fundamental level didn't bother me. I think Spectre is a film that like in its own plot and story is fundamentally uh, kind of wrong, which is which is the idea of like making Blofeld Bond's brother is is a it was a deep miscalculation. First of all, it's essentially lifted from a James Bond parody of Austin Powers Three, but uh, but the bigger problem is that it creates it's uh, it doesn't track it doesn't it doesn't the, the the actions of the character in the present do not feel tangibly connected to anything in the past because the characters themselves do not really communicate with it uh, because uh, because the Bond and Blofeld themselves don't seem to he seems to have any special relationship. It's just said that they have, and also by doing this and claiming that somehow every single film before the uh, Spectre was kind of like this big plan made by Blofeld to torture Bond. First of all, it doesn't make any sense, and the second of all, it places Bond himself into the center of this universe. Things are happening to him because of who he is. It's in, and and that's in not interesting. And it could be maybe interesting if the reason for Bond being tormented was something that he had done. Like for example, what if Blofeld was someone that Bond defeated during his military service, and that was kind of like this grudge that kind of like uh, carries over. But he, but him being kind of like this jealous half brother. That does have nothing to that has nothing to do with Bond's job or like who he is in the present. It's just kind of, and it just doesn't. It's not. It's not. It's. It just doesn't. It just doesn't work. <laughs> I, I I I can't really articulate it any better in this situation. But the problem is like it. But the fundamental problem is it places Bond in the uh, middle middle of this world. Bond is a character who engages in other people's drama and thus becomes a target in those stories. He is not the center of those stories. And even though Bond is a man of the past, he is first and, first and foremost a man of the present, a man of action, performing his duties for the country and whatnot. So I'm not sure like the, if, if you understood what I said, but uh, that's kind of like my uh, general problem with the uh, story. No, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Um, not something I've thought of myself, actually, so um, it's good to hear an alternate point of view, certainly one to think about. Uh, let's switch gears just slightly, um, and we'll talk more around the actors. So obviously six six men have taken the official title of James Bond. Who would you say is your favourite of those six? It's very much a three-way tie between uh, Craig, Connery, and Dalton. And uh, and because I and I would say that like the general through line with those is that I do gravitate towards uh, performers that are closer to Fleming's original creation. And uh, and right now, I would say that uh, Daniel Craig is third, uh, Sean Connery is the second, is second, and the first one is Dalton. And I, but I, and I, and just the reason why I think Dalton maybe edges over the other two is because he's kind of he it's it's kind of a bittersweet kind of situation that uh, because he only did, did two films, I don't think he ever had to cl- ever had the opportunity to go bad with his role. And I think both Sean Connery and Daniel Craig had like missteps in their ten years, which I think kind of like uh dropped their uh dropped their ranking a little bit for me. And uh and I do kind of think like Dalton was the one that felt very much like um 
because like I would say like this, Sean Connery to me was a is a Bond that like has the uh, the energy and the this like primordial kind of like uh, feel, but he's not necessarily a dramatic actor or dramatic or his version of Bond is not that dramatic. He's very much kind of like a lifestyle icon in many ways. And Daniel Craig is very like a dramatic actor. And even though I really like Craig, I do always felt like he's uh, a type is is his one kind of interpretation of Bond, but he's not a quintessential Bond. I think his style and his like look and way he carries himself doesn't make him kind of like he he's not the person he's not the figure I think of when I think of Bond. I think Dalton is the one where these two meet, like a very serious dramatic actor, but also this kind of just kind of way of like visual energy and like way he carries himself, which kind of. I think it's a perfect combination. And uh, I would say like, if there would be any kind of like fantasy of like, if we history has history would have went differently in the film series. I think one, my fantasy bond film would have been a third Timothy Dalton bond film, which would have been Dalton's golden eye, which I think would have made dramatically much more sense given the uh, post cold war world and this betrayal of a former friend and whatnot. But, uh, but, uh, but also a special shout out to Toby Stevens, who played Gustav Graves in Die Another Day as, as a villain. He, makes, he does a fantastic radio play version of Bond. And I think his voice to me feels very much of like what the Fleming, what, what the novel version of Bond would sound like to me. So regular listeners of the podcast will know that we, we talk about our favorite Bond. We rank the films each week. But one of the other things that we also attract is the, the theme song. So, R2, do you have a particular favorite theme song from the franchise? Um, hmm. We already talked about that Casino Royale is my favorite film and Dalton is my favorite Bond. So I think those two would have to be kind of like uh, recognized in this situation. I think You Know My Name is my favorite song right now. And the, uh, and the second runner up would be maybe The Living Daylight by Aha. From the uh, living da- uh, from the film, the Living Daylights. Uh, I personally always had more gravitate towards more kind of like hard hitting, kind of sharp and elusive and seductive Bond songs, kind of like Goldeneye and whatnot. Not the grand romantic epics of that, like I know For Your Eyes Only would be, or something like that, or even Skyfall. And uh, but if we like, uh, but then like if we if we want to stretch the uh, definition of what makes true, uh, what makes what makes a Bond song, I think the best Bond song, which I the most uh, the song that I most consistently listen to, is "The Look of Love" by Dusty Springfield, because it was recorded for the Casino Royale parody film from 1967, and that's a really really kind of smooth and pleasant song for for like a Saturday evening like right now. And uh, I just I also want to shout out the uh, the Bond Twenty Five uh, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra recording, which I think made have made like fantastic renditions of like a lesser Bond songs like Die Another Day and Another Way to Die. Uh, I think, for example, I think Die Another Day is just fantastic in uh, when when it's kind of like adapted to these symphonic um, stylings, and it was in according to Spotify, it was my I don't know top twenty most listened song last year uh, last year. Yeah, thanks for that. And I must admit, The Look of Love by Dusty Springfield, I had no idea that was recorded for Casino Royale of 1967. So I feel like I've been educated on this podcast. So thank you for that. Uh, we're we're going to switch gears again. Um, to Jay's point, we, talk, we like to talk about various aspects of the Bond franchise. We can't talk James Bond without talking Bond girls. So who would you say is your favourite of all the Bond girls that have been? 
I think my uh, top three generally is the conventional favorites in the um, for many of the fans. It would be uh, Tracy DiVincenzo from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Vesperlin from Casino Royale, and Natalia Simeonova from GoldenEye. From 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 those three, I would say Simeonova, uh, Natalia Simeonova is my favorite, and the reason is that uh, even though like Vesper and um, Tracy are very interesting and very strong characters played by fantastic actors, Eva Green and Diana Rigg. I think the, the reason why I'm, I don't want to pick those as my favorites is because they generally, they are great bond, bond ladies. I like to use the word lady, uh, uh, but they, they're great bond ladies, but they're kind of designed to be those, like they are supposed to be the very kind of quintessential bond falls in love with these women kind of characters and i always feel like that kind of shifts the way we are supposed to see them in the uh in the films simeonova i think is uh is he's more in the way she's more she's more in the way vein of uh what traditionally bond girls are like uh, but i think goldeneye really pushes and finds interesting ways to explore how the sometimes very limited character of bond girl or bond lady can be used like she she has his own she has her own backstory her own adventures her own motivations that brings him into clash with bond in around like halfway point when they meet for the first time and i think and like i and also isabella skorupka is wonderfully beautiful woman but i feel like unlike with someone like denise richards i actually believe natalia as this kind of like uh, computer uh, engineer character, uh, like and uh, so on forth, so forth. See, 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 I think Skorupko has this kind of almost like a Jodie Foster quality, where she seems so inherently intelligent that that makes him very interesting. And I would think that Natalia would be in the in the future of the Bond films, especially because I think there's a greater push to give more agency and more room for female characters in the film series in the future. I think Natalia is maybe a good blueprint to think about in the future films. Because how much how strong he feels a character while also fulfilling a very kind of uh, more kind of like conventional conventional role of a Bond lady in a Bond film. That's great. And listeners, if you want to see where we ranked Natalia, Tracy and Vesper, you have to make sure you listen to the, the main podcast. So moving on, you've talked about your favorite Bond girl slash Bond lady. Do you have a favorite villain? So this could be a, a main villain or a henchman. Yeah, um, let me think quickly. Um, in general, I would say it's a close toss up between Telisavales' version of Blofeld from On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Le Chiff from Casino Royale. Uh, I think Savalas is one of the one of those actors that I ha- has this unique capacity to make his dialogue sing. He's, I think he was like a theatrically trained actor, and so he's he's a fantastic orator. Like I would, it would be inter- it would have been interesting to see like a film with Timothy Dalton and Savalas in the same film because they are both kind of like they, I think they come so from somewhat similar backgrounds as like when it comes to actor acting training and whatnot and um, he I think he's the he's the best Blofeld of the, all of the uh, all that have come and I think he's also I think maybe the closest maybe to how Blofeld is in the books but a book Blofeld is kind of I think a different beast and in some ways the uh, the film and some some ways the novel version is more compelling and some ways the film version is more compelling. I like I would say for example that that Savalas's version of Blowell in On Her Majesty's Secret Service is better 
a better character, better villain than Blofeld is in is in the uh, Honor Majesty Secret Service book. And uh, the second one I would say is Le Chiffre. And the reason for, and I think why Le Chiffre really works is because I think first of all, Mads Mikkelsen is one of the best actors of working current, for working today. Like he has this magnetic energy to him where like he's, he has this fantastic capacity to be very menacing, but also he has this very underlying vulnerability to him. And uh, I really enjoy that. Like, it he, he does make. Uh, I think at least, at least for me, I think the viewing experience of viewing experience of Casino Royale is a little bit complicated because we want Bond to win, for example, the poker game and whatnot. But when the ship loses, I think it's it's never it's not that triumphant of a moment. First of all, of course, we know that the film is still going going uh, going on, but there is this feeling of like this guy is so screwed right now. And uh, I, I think that quality, and also I think that's the great thing about the Casino Royale, Casino Royale film and the book, is that it feels like Bond and Le Chiffre themselves both are kind of like mirror images of each other. They are both kind of agents of some kind of like power structure, like Le Chiffre is this unknown, uh, is the uh, this middle manager of this unknown organization, and Bond is this assassin from Under Majesty's government. And they are both coming to terms in the film with the fact that they are both disposable and they kind of like and the ship's problem his tragic flaw is that he he overplays his own hand uh forfeiting his own life and bond does that all the time in that film also like he puts himself in the situations where he doesn't think he just does without without and without being willing to understand that like his government is going to maybe kind of like throw him aside if that uh, if if the situation warrants it so i think they have this wonderful duality with each other and also i would say i want to say as a kind of um honorary mention i think fiona fiona volpe and emilio largo from thunderball i think make a fantastic pairing i don't think neither of those characters are very deep but they have a very strong sense of presence and this presentation, like with Largo being very, I think, a classic Bond villain with the uh, eye patch and uh, ring, and Luciana Paluzzi as Volpe being probably the most beautiful woman <laughs> that has ever lived. <laughs> so the uh, while also being this kind of like very unsentimental kind of uh, like this sharp villainous, and uh, th- those are really fun. So yeah, I would say like there's this one villain that is like all inspiring in this authority, uh, second one who which which is more kind of like uh, makes you feel conflicted in his vulnerability, and this uh, and in the third place these two Volpe and Largo because they are just fun. Thank you for that. That's that's a quite the selection of villains and from a range of Bond eras as well. So that that covers a lot of ground. Uh, now another thing that Jay and I like to talk about when on the main pod are our favorite scenes from each of the the films memorable scenes throughout the franchise there have been um what would you say are a few of your more memorable scenes from the 25 films we've had so far oh yeah um well i have i have five let's say five so i'm gonna quickly go through them uh my number five which i think is a collection of scenes is like a portion film it's the uh, it's from the li- film the living daylight which is the extraction sequence of like when bond is extracting co- extracting Koska from 
was like the uh, from the east to the west um because well, well first of all it's a it's a quite close adaptation from the uh short story the living daylights and i think it's really fun that they made a film where like the starting point is the novel, a short story and they expand it to something else i think to me that's kind of like the purest form of bond that i really enjoy when he's kind of like this in the shadows uh kind of lurking cold war character who is kind of like who transitions from a tuxedo like to me like a, one of the great kind of like quintessential bond situations is from that scene when he's in a tuxedo and then goes into a hotel and then it, it realized you realize that the uh the color of tuxedo is velcro and it's just like uh, uh, uh obscures his neck so he can do the uh sniper uh kind of like uh, uh a sniper kind of like guarding situation um after that right after that and uh yeah i think that's like one of the great bond scenes to me absolutely uh number four i would say is bond versus grant in from rest with love the train scene because i personally think like even though bond is known for the very high explosive action i've always liked it most when bond is in close quarters situations like fighting to the death with someone else because i think that kind of First of all, like even though Bond is not realistic at all, that feels more most tangible of like what this kind of man in this kind of job do. And there is this kind of like, and it kind of it's there very intense. You really want Bond to win, but also there is this knowledge of like this situation won't end unless we either one of these two are dead, which I think kind of places Bond, places the viewer into into Bond's perspective more than any other scene when he's like really struggling and it's very close to buying it and then of course finds a way to uh, get away from that and also that scene i think it's a it's a great fight scene because i don't think it's very well choreographed but it's not too choreographed it feels very kind of burly and kind of messy and also the sound is fantastic with the uh, screeching trains and the uh, smoke of course in the uh, visuals and whatnot and number three i would say is the uh, opening scene from goldfinger if I would have to show a scene from a Bond film to someone who has never seen a Bond film, I think that would be my pick, just because it has everything. Bond is kind of like doing this kind of like a clandestine sabotage mission, like going through from the water and like sneaking into a facility, exploding it, and uh, kind of like get, getting rid of his wetsuit. There's a, like tuxedo behind a tuxedo under it, and then like goes into a bar and then makes out with a girl, but it's targeted by assassination and whatnot. So I think that's a, I think it's a perfect small uh, Bond film. Um, and then I would say is probably number two would be again in the vein of what with uh, Bond versus Grant is Bond versus Kaufman, Doctor Kaufman in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, the uh, the hotel room scene, because I think that's I, that I think I think is the best scene in the whole of Brosnan films, which I think is kind of weirdly telling because the films themselves kind of got really loud and really kind of bombastic. And that kind of small scene between those those two characters is my favorite because it kind of because it reveals something about Bond's character that we very rarely see, which is that like there is this darkness to him. Like he is like his like Bond is a heroic character in a very Greek way, meaning that he's not a heroic in terms of virtue, he's he's heroic in terms of competence. And uh, he is he, he is defined by his ability or unwillingness to kill an unarmed man, for example, in a situation. And I think that's a quintessential scene 
regarding that. I think it's like I would say like Pierce Brosnan is one of those Bond actors that is the furthest away from Fleming's creation, aside from that scene and maybe a few others. But I would say that's uh, very much a Fleming scene. And my number one scene is uh, number one scene is from Casino Royale when Bond has killed. I think Malaka was the character's name. No, no, Malaka was the uh, free runner. Like, but he kills the uh, the um, Uganda warlord, and uh, then kind of goes to the bathroom and cleans himself up by kind of like washing himself and getting the uh, drink and whatnot. Because I think that's one of the great character revealing moments of Bond. It makes him very human, and also it kind of informs the kind of like the. Um, the inner dialogue, the inner world that Bond has, because the novels have very much in the novels, Bond has lots of internal dialogue, which you can't, which you can't really translate to screen. But that's a scene where it kind of works, where like it kind of speaks to the idea of like why does Bond uh, like uh, kind of like go from women, woman to woman? Why he likes why he likes to drink? Why he likes to gam- Why he likes to drink so heavily? Why does he uh, gamble so much? It's him kind of like, because he's a man who lives on the edge of his, I like to quote Dalton, he lives on the edge of his life very much. Like, and that's his resting pulse, being on the uh, kind of life's edge all the time, which, which is kind of makes him a character who kind of is always at the kind of like in a state, a state of some kind of, of fight or flight, where he has to use these vices to kind of subdue himself. And but but at the same time, it's also something that kind of like makes him push himself more and more to the limit. So in that in that sense, I would say, for example, and also and a side note, if I would have to pick any character from any film outside of Bond films that remind me of what I think Bond is as a person, it would be uh, Jeremy Jeremy Renner's character from the film The Hurt Locker, because it's a film, it's a war film about a man who is kind of struggling with stresses of war, but instead of becoming PTSD and panicked by it. He becomes addicted to it, and uh, like he can't he can't live outside the state of battle. And I think Bond has this uh, this same kind of neurosis. And I don't know, it's just something that I uh, that it's that kind of mean that I latch onto that scene, for example, like he, him kind of coming to terms with the uh, the sheer stress and darkness and extremity of his life, and also how it might be very beautiful, but it's not war, it's not safe. And it's very alienating and lonely. Yeah, there, there's some great scenes there. And, you know, one of the ones I think sticks out for me is the Bond versus Red Grant. And I know we, we talked about that quite a bit, Andy, didn't we? In one of our, obviously, from Russia With Love episode. Yeah, very, very memorable scene um, from from the Connery era. So moving on, we we talk about the, the gadgets. And Andy's well, something you actually talk about in each of the episodes in terms of the different gadgets Bond uses. So do you have any particular favorites from the franchise, R2? I would say that, like, in general, my rule of thumb is that, like, uh, the more subtle, the better. Like something that could actually be given uh, to a spy, uh, even in this fantasy world. Um, So I would maybe say that my top three right now would be the wrist dart for Moonraker. Like for, a, for a film that is very fantastic, I think it has one of the uh, more kind of subtle and interesting gadgets, which I think is the uh, which is the uh, the dart gun in inside the, uh, uh, the the sleeve, which he uh, which which shoots when Bond kind of like uh, ex, uh, ex, um, when Bond like opens his hand and the pulse uh, from his hand kind of like shoots it out. It's great, and uh, 
on the same vein, I would say the rocket cigarette from You Only Live Twice is fun. And uh, where like, you know, Bart smokes a cigarette, um, uh, like lights up a cigarette and it actually has a, a small rocket that he could, he can use a gun. But I would say that my favorite favorite gadget all, of all time is the suitcase from at the attaché case from the film From Russia with Love, because the uh, just like the sheer applicability of it all, like it's a it's a suitcase, but it has a knife that it is very easily easily opened. It has gold sovereigns, which I think is something that Bond should always have, at least in the uh, in the uh, older films. Like if he gets stuck somewhere where like he has no support network or whatnot. Gold Sovereign's a great way to buy some favors. And uh and you know the uh anti-burglary uh system that like uh with the tear gas canister and I and I think from all of those things I think the uh the small uh sniper rifle that gun uh, that is inside the uh case is probably the uh the cherry on top. Like it's the it, I think it's a fantastic piece and I would love to see something akin to that in the future Bond film, like him kind of like building himself kind of like this ap- weapon apparatus from kind of smaller smaller things that are easy, easy to hide. Because that's, that, that, those are things that really, exi- that really do exist in nowadays also, but it also harkens back to like Second World War, where like Sten guns were very popular with kind of like a special like SOE forces and whatnot, because it was very easy to break into small pieces. Yeah, some great gadgets there. I mean, particularly the attaché case from from Russia with Love uh, is a particular favourite of mine as well. Now, there's over the sixty years, sixty years plus of Bond. Now, there's been various high points, uh, but there's also been one or two low points as well. What would you say are, are some of the low points of the franchise? Yes. So, um, well, we already talked about the uh, the Brofeld thing uh, regarding Spectre, so I'm not going to go over that again, but I think still that, like, I think that was a very squand, that was a miscalculation that hurt No Time to Die, and I think it was kind of a horrible act, uh, or, or, like, horrible decision, or, like, that in the series, because Spectre, Spectre and Blofeld were so long, uh, something that the Eon Productions couldn't touch, and when they could, they screwed it up. <laughs> So uh, it's kind of sad. Uh, but I would say that maybe the weakest time period in the series to me was between 1971 and 1974, which included Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and Man with the Golden Gun. The reason is because I think something happened after 1969 and, on her, and the film On Her Majesty's Secret Service, because that's a film that has has great legs. Like, it has been... Uh, kind of um, reinterpreted and like reevaluated as a classic and uh, in the Bond series, and it's a film that has influenced future Bond films so much, and it has such strong elements and a strong sense of confidence in terms of style, in terms of casting, in terms of set design and whatnot. But it was, but it wasn't a success when it came out. Lazenby wasn't that well received, and the film didn't produce that much. It was a uh, was like I think it was like the second lowest grossing Bond film to come out at that time, and uh, and also Lazenby didn't want to continue and whatnot. So the so the series went in this mad scramble to uh, essentially get back the audiences and keep the series going, which meant that they had to bring back Connery for Diamonds Are Forever, and um, which did which worked to varying results i think diamonds are forever is one of the worst bond films and uh, but then he left after that and they had to find one uh, new bond again 
and Watcher more came in and whatnot. And the thing with Watcher was that like they didn't really know what to do with him um, before uh, Spy Who Loved Me, where they made a conscious decision to reinvent what his version of Bond is, which is which was more soft, which was softer and more kind of like funny and kind of uh, gentlemanly, while he was much more of a kind of like a rogue, a bastard in the uh, Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun. So they didn't really know what to do with him. Uh, so to reiterate, Sean Connery was kind of a weak, had like a weak last entry in the official series, and Roger Moore didn't. They really, they didn't really know what to do with Roger Moore in the first two films, and also because because um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service had been such a flop, the film series at that point really started leaning into trends of like what's popular at that time because Bond film series started to seem passe. So, so with with like um, with diamonds, diamonds are forever. It didn't necessarily emulate a certain style, but but made it to, but bringing it to America was a clear kind of attempt to uh, cater to American audiences. And with Live and Let Die, they did a black exploitation film, which granted I think is a I think a very kind of inspired idea if you try to adapt a book that is so as problematic as Live and Let Die, which is kind of with uh, with very racist overtones. Which uh, so I think it, would, it was smart to try to make it into a black exploitation film, but it was very much a uh, outsider's perspective on a series on the genre of films, and uh, and also Bond himself is kind of redesigned in that with his style, uh, with his clothing style, and done this gun uh, choice into a character that he was not. Like his turtleneck and shoulder holster design was essentially Steve McQueen from Bullet. And he he had he had changed his gun from uh, PPK to Magnum 44, for uh, uh, like a, yeah 44 Magnum, which was Dirty Harry's gun, which had come out in 1971. So the idea of like Bond had essentially become a passe thing, and it tried it was kind of like it felt like it was like a old guy who was still still trying to feel relevant that during that time. So which I think hurts, which I think led to. At that time, very successful films, Diamonds and Live and Let Die, were very successful films. But I, I think those films don't kind of. I think they have soured in my mind very heavily because they feel because they feel embarrassed of what they are. And Man with the Golden Gun continues in this vein because it was trying trying to do the uh, um, Bruce Lee action films of the uh, early seventies and whatnot. And also, I think uh, that was a film where Bond's character was the most cruel, most inconsiderate, and crude. Uh, character, which he can, he could be in the novels, but even in the novels, especially the way he acts towards women uh, in the novels, even though he was crude and the character has, I think, a bit of a sadomasochistic bent and kind of like this misogynistic attitudes uh, in the novels, he generally was kind of very kind of nurturing and kind of understanding and whatnot. And Roger Moore's version of Bond in that film, Man with the Golden God, isn't even that. He's very unlikable, even as a, almost a villain, a villainous way. And so, so those things were really bad. The uh, insecurity the series seemed to have regarding itself and their inability to, to hone down who Bond's character is uh, in the early 70s. And in addition to that, the way the female characters are handled in those films. Where I feel like that, but in the, in the um from from the feminist lens, Bond series I don't think has had a, a simple trajectory towards progress. 
because I th because I usually like to break it uh, break the uh, treatment of female characters in the Bond series into two columns. How strong is the character, and how does the film treat treat the character? As in, like the character might have like strengths and kind of like uh, they, they can be very compelling, but if Bond, for example, is kind of questionable in his in in the actions, or like the, or if the film kind of like has this very very passe cruelty, or or or, or and so I or if the film has this very callous cruelty towards the characters, that's one other thing. And I think like Sean Connery's films had uh, very much a situation where they had very strong female characters like Honey Rider, Tatiana Romanova, I think is very compelling, uh, and like Pussy Galore and uh, Domino Derval and uh, Fiona Volpe. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, but they might uh, they, they were very strong characters, but I think they had maybe some kind of like crude treatment regarding them. And um, sometimes in the later Bond films, the Bond girl could be very kind of vapid and dull and vapid or one-dimensional and kind of like uh, just a scream, helpless scream queen. But he, but, he, but he could get some, but, but the film itself treats the character with compassion. With Lassa, and the example, example of that would be Tanya Roberts in The View to a Kill. I think in 71 to 74, they was like worst of both worlds, especially with like, uh, live and let die man the world golden gun the women themselves were kind of weak characters and they were treated very badly so i think that kind of creates this very dist uh effect a very kind of like ugly gives a very kind of ugly feel to those few films sorry i got maybe a bit political but i think this is a kind of important subject to bring up regarding <laughs> bond series we in the, in the main podcast we talk about some of the one-liners and quotes in each of the films so do you have any particular quotes that stick out or one-liners from the franchise? Well, yeah, I think the, um, mm, like, I've always liked when the uh, quotes are kind of smart, but also kind of sardonic and dark. Like, when they're really silly, I kind of find them a little bit out of character. So I think the, uh, from, uh, I think Thunderball has two very good ones with the uh, Bond killing the guy with the uh, harpoon and say, well, I think he got a point. Or the uh, and also I, my and my favorite quote from that film is probably when uh, Dave ha Bond and Fiona have slept together and um, and like they are heading out and the uh, Bond opens the door and goons are there so he closes it immediately to kind of secure the situation but realizing that Volpe is actually pointing a gun at him he just says oh friends of yours and then opens the door and come in <laughs> let's in like that's a fantastically funny 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 line and um and then i think casino royale the line the last hand nearly killed me is really fun after bond has been poisoned and uh i would and also from no time to die which is uh, i think a film that i'm a big proponent of i think the line that bond says to um safin which is the uh that all you really do uh, the uh, the line that bond says to safin which is that uh which is uh, all you're really doing is standing on a very long line of angry little men. I think it's a fantastic line because it feels very much like a Fleming line. Like he, Fleming was someone who kind of liked to take the piss out of uh, uh, characters that were kind of like megalomaniac in their actions, like Dr. No or, or Blofeld. So I think that was that's a very much a line that would exist, I think, in a Fleming novel. And regarding the, uh, I think, a quintessential line regarding Bond's Kind of like darker aspects was from the uh, aforementioned uh, Tomorrow Never Dies scene between Bond and Kaufman, where Bond is kind of like turning Kaufman's gun into his forehead, and Kaufman is pleading with line like, 
pleading with the line, I'm just a professional doing a job. And Bond just like, it just says me too, and then shoots him to death. Like, I think that's, uh, I think that's a very much a, a quintessential Bond scene, uh, Bond line to me. Indeed. Thank you for those. So you've mentioned a few times throughout the pod, the novels. So my next question is going to be, have you read any of the, the Bond novels or, or how many of the Bond novels have you read? Um, well, yeah, the, well, the uh, I've read uh, or at least once all of the uh, all of the uh, the uh, the actual novels from Ian Fleming, which I think was fourteen, and uh, with two short stories. I don't think I've read all of the uh, the short stories all the way through, uh, but uh, but I but I kind of like but but I've read all of them at least once. But like uh, my memory is a bit foggy, maybe with some of them because like uh, because time has passed since. But I every now and then I do skim them. Uh, for example, I did scheme like you only twice and for Honor Match Secret Service for this uh, this specific bot podcast just like just to fact check myself. Although I I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, listeners would want to fact uh, check my facts afterwards in some in some cases. But I would say yeah, the uh, I but I have read the uh, Fleming novels and I've read few other like materials like the. Um, the official autobiography of 007, which I think is a interesting exercise in meta narratives and has some interesting ideas, but in the end is kind of needlessly complicated and kind of pointless. And aside from that, I read mostly the Dynamite comics that uh, have come out since 2015. So I was going to ask you about who should be the next bomb, but I know um, previously we've discussed this off air and you said... Um, you're not really fussed, but you're happy to talk about some of the side characters more, which we can pick up later on in the podcast. If that's okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I just like reiterate, like I, I just like the the whole discussion between about like who should be next part is so fervent right now. But I just, it's just it's so kind of like I feel so saturated by that question. So I'm kind of I just not I'm just not interested in discussing it, um, <laughs> like or like adding to it because I don't have anything necessarily i don't have any information necessarily an insight to give regarding this no, that's a fair point and there'll always be people who say it's the wrong choice regardless of who's who's in charge it's one of those you'll never please all of the people all of the time but i will ask you one more question just before we then move on to our rankings and uh, this this may touch on some points you've made earlier but is there any particular film that you were looking forward to more than the others and did it meet your expectations well, yeah, like I would say, like since Casino Royale, I've had, uh, I've been very excited for every Bond film that have come after, uh, like every uh, come after that, and uh, I would say, like in general, I would say Skyfall, I think, was a almost like a euphoric experience when it came out for the first time. Like, but I, but it wasn't like was I really excited about? I was very excited about it, but I kind of wasn't quite prepared for what it gave. And uh, and I was very pleased with what it gave. I was I was quite emotional at the end of the film. And uh, on the flip side of that, after Skyfall, I with Spe- when Spectre was announced, like I was like hugely excited when the title was released and the cast was released and like Sam Mendes coming back and whatnot. Like it should work, but it didn't work. I would say like well, Sky- Spectre to me wasn't like a massive horrible disappointment, but like you know the feeling when you've seen like, I know Phantom Menace 
1999, where like you you were very excited about it, but then you see it, and there's this like sinking feeling in your stomach that something isn't right. And uh, and I feel like I uh, for the last like few years I feel like I've been in this abusive relationship with that uh, film Spectre because I've tried to like it so much, but it just it just doesn't work. <laughs> So uh, that's probably my uh, kind of like, those are the two, like Skyfall, very excited. And it was absolutely kind of like taken aback with what I got as Spectre. And from from the heels of that, I was very excited for Spectre and that didn't work. And so that's the uh, kind of the dramatic shifts I've had in the last few years. So moving on swiftly, we've got the rankings now for a number of different areas that myself and Andy are monitoring in the, the main season of the podcast. So Kicking us off, R2, what are your top five Bond films? And obviously you've mentioned Casino Royale already. Yes, well, right now I would say it's maybe number five is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, Number four is Skyfall. Uh, Number three is The Living Daylights. Number two is From Russia with Love. And number one is Casino Royale. Like I would generally say like there's a great variety there, but I would say like the carrying theme is that like I'm more... Uh, I prefer more kind of like the more grounded, more kind of like uh, kind of sharp, more serious and kind of like brutal films in the series. And uh, which which in that in that vein, I would probably have to say that honorable honorable mention to honorable mention to License to Kill. But it but it's not on this top five. But yeah, those five would be my uh, picks right now. Great stuff. Moving on to Bond girls or Bond ladies. Uh, do you have a top five from the franchise? Yes. Well, I think I've been very kind of like candid already about my top three, but like right now it would be Tatiana Romanova from um, from Russia with Love. Uh, number four would be Fiona Volpe, uh, which I think uh, which is from Thunderball. But I think like of course she's a character that could very well exist in the uh, villain category also, and I and I would like to uh, recognize that. And then number three is Teresa Di Vincenzo, Tracy Bond. I think he says she's a I think she's a fantastic character. I think I think the character itself is kind of maybe creaky in a way, like how she's utilized in the uh, in the film, but it's remedied by the fantastic performance by Diana Rigg. And then number two is Vespa Lind, and number one is Natalia Simeonova. So you've mentioned earlier on about your favorite villain is Blofeld from On a Majesty's Secret Service. What are your other top five? Well, what are your um, other villains in terms of to make your top five? From the franchise this could be primary villain or henchman um so the uh well number five right now would be franz sanchez from license to kill granted i do kind of feel that it's uh the character is maybe a little bit out of place in the bonds world because he's a pablo escobar pastiche and the film itself is very kind of like lethal weapon style but that's the uh, history of bond films is like they are very good at uh, adapting uh trends of the time but he's a, like he's very uh, compelling. I think Robert Darby, despite his very kind of uh, tough to swallow political views, I think is a very underrated actor. And um, and number four would be Emilio Largo. And I would like to place Fiona Volpe in connection to that because I think they are kind of like really fun duo that have I think that are I think those characters while they are not necessarily that detailed or like they are not that deep. The casting carries so much of the weight, and that I'm very happy about that. And I would consider Emilia Largo to me to be the uh, not a quintessential ba- Bond villain, but kind of like uh, a prototype that of like uh, where 
which I think like if I would have to picture a Bond villain in my mind, I would probably think of him in the classical sense. Number three would be right now Raul Silva from uh, Skyfall, because I think the uh, I was very taken by the uh, kind of like the demented qualities that he had, which I think makes him uh, because he's many times compared to Alec Trevelyan from GoldenEye, but I think Silva is more interesting because he has this kind of like this kind of like broken psychology in him that is very kind of fascinating. And Le Chiffre from is number two, and uh, number one is Telisavales's version of uh, Blowcut. Let's let's talk about Bond actors again. So you you mentioned earlier kind of your favorite, but we've only we've had six that have taken up the mantle. How would you rank them? One to six, or six to one? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go from six to one. Um, well, number six is George Lazenby, but I think he's by default. Like, he was another professional actor who was placing this role and was clearly kind of, was kind of like, um, a little bit kind of feeling his way through the role, which he immediately abandoned. So he's kind of, there's not much much material to work from. But I don't think he's awful. I think he just... He wasn't a standout, but I don't think. But the uh, the other elements are so strong in that film that it kind of carries all the boats. The uh, the same tide carried all the boats. Uh, number five, I think, is Pierce Brosnan. Sorry for every other '90s kid out there, but I do think that even though he looks like he was designed in a lab to look like Bond, like he very much looks like the uh, what novel version of the character is. I've always thought that Brosnan to me is. The perfect bond in the same way that the, uh, the faceless uh, brand merchandising icon of Bond is in is in the uh, Heineken bottles. Like he looks the part, he fe- and whatnot, but there's no true character there to um, work with. And I and because like, I think because he never really he never found a way. And the scripts I think are at fault, but I ne- I think he never found a way to really. Uh, to actually make the character his own, but I also think that's part of partially because of his own disinterest in the novel version of the of um, Bond, because he said that he read maybe Casino Royale, but felt like it didn't give him much to work with. And aside and uh, in comparison to Craig and uh, Dalton, who very much talked about or very much were about the novel version. If you watch Pierce Brosnan's uh, interviews, he seems to just talk about uh, watching Goldfinger in 1964 when he came came from Ireland and see the, saw the first colored film, and he said that like he was essentially informed by Connery and Bro- uh, Roger Moore, and he was trying to find kind of like this middle ground between them, which I think sacrificed his own style, uh, or it sacrificed his own opportunity to create his own version of the character. Roger Moore then comes number four, and that's because like he's a character which I think is quite 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 far away from what Fleming had created. But in his own terms, Moore is fantastically charismatic and really fun to look uh, to watch. Uh, the first two films, notwithstanding, <clears throat> and then right now number three would be Daniel Craig, number two would be Sean Connery, and number one would be Timothy Dalton. So last question in terms of rankings. You, you mentioned earlier on in the episode that you, you currently like You Know My Name and The Living Daylight. So do you just want to confirm what is your top favorite Bond theme songs? Yes. Um, right now, I would probably say number five is License to Kill, 
like I said that I don't like necessarily the more, more grand and romantic Bond songs, but if you listen to the lyrics of License to Kill, it's actually a song about a psychotic stalker. <laughs> so it has this very kind of uh, interesting view to it. Uh, number four is A View to a Kill, a Duran Duran song. It's just great. And uh, number three is Goldeneye. Uh, like I said, I like more seductive kind of like uh, snake-like songs. And number two is You Know My Name, which I think is a very um, great kind of like uh, distillation of what that what the bond from that film feels like. And also I would love to see uh, like a rock song again as a bond song. Like I would love to have like Arctic Monkeys doing a song in the future. And, um, and the first one right now is Living Daylights with a special shout out. A special shout out to the Living Daylights, the second song in the Living Daylights, which is Where Has Everybody Gone from The Pretenders, which is a really fun rock song also. Thank you for that. That brings to the end our rankings piece. But before we let you go, uh, just a few things we wanted to chat about. So as we're recording this, we're not that far removed from Bond's 60th anniversary. And I understand you did something pretty special to celebrate that. Why don't you uh, tell the listeners what it is that you did? Uh, yeah, so... Um, so yeah, indeed, like last year was the 60th anniversary, and um, in general, like I've, I had a very kind of um, a pretty eventful uh, 60th in terms of Bond, because the uh, my my year started with me releasing my one hour long documentary or essay about the history of uh, Bond's films, or rather how Bond films have reflected the history of um, of the times that they were produced in starting from the novels up until No Time to Die. And uh, when that was done and like year went on, me and my friend decided that we would love, and actually I decided for my friend that like we that we should have like a proper bond celebration. Like I was the super fan, but he was kind of like a, a fan also and a fan also who, had, who liked to try like new things and whatnot. So I decided that I wanted to have a, a bond evening where we would kind of try things from the novels and kind of like just spice our life up with little Bond uh, lifestyle. And the uh, the idea was this, that we uh, that I we went to his place, which was this kind of like large flat, and um, our viewing, our, we had like viewing program, which was first the documentary about the history of Bond music that came from Amazon. And then there was the uh, the um, the, uh, the um, recording from the uh, Royal Royal Albert Hall uh, concert that was made for the 60th. So that was the uh, those were those were the two pieces that we had. And the third one would be a Bond film of our choice. So we made that as our viewing plan, and we spiced that up with food and like drink. Because the thing is that like Bond in its earliest forms. When it came to like the uh, what, what was the escapism that Bond books offered, it was travel and food and drink. So we kind of those are the things that we can create, recreate in this, uh, in this um, time and place in this kind of like cold Arctic <laughs> early winter of in winter in Finland. So what we did was so I so I created a menu because I'm a bit of an amateur cook. I really like make, making food and whatnot. So what we did that um. We made a we made a menu of first of kind of like snacks, and the snacks included 
few, few types of cheese, like brie cheese and blue, um, and like blue cheese and with crackers and uh, so on and so forth, with like fig jam and whatnot. And um, then we had martinis. I bought myself uh, a shaker and like uh, and 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 all the ingredients from the original novel, or as close as they could work could be nowadays, which means like Gordon's gin. Vodka. I we used Smirnoff vodka because we want to use a Russian vodka, but but well, and some kind of Russian vodka. But Russian vodka, understandably, is right now in short supply for good reasons. But Smirnoff was one thing that we could find, and um, uh, Lille Blanc, which is the closest thing to Kina Lille or Kocha, or maybe Americana, but like that's a debate for another time. And then we and and got glasses and lemon peel. And we made drinks for ourselves, and like had drank like six or no, six of those uh, during that evening, and um, and ate and ate those things. And also the big kind of like centerpiece of our snack table was at first a lump fish lump fish roe and actual caviar. And we, neither of us had eaten caviar before, so that was kind of like this great experience of us like doing the thing of like putting it in our mouth and like pressing it into the roof of our mouths and just like letting the uh, bubbles explode. And that was kind of like my uh, great experiences of this year, just that in this context of this series, we managed to kind of like create this very novel culinary experience for both of us. And especially for him, because he's not as much of a foodie as I am. And he was very happy about that. And, uh, and after that, we also had like, um, our main dish was like roast potatoes, and honey glazed carrots and uh, medium rare steaks for both of us with like uh, glasses of red wine and whatnot. So we did all of those. We ate. We drank so many martinis, and also made like vodka soda, uh, vodka soda, and whatnot like that. And um, and then after like and then after seeing those two pieces, we then we decided eventually to watch uh, Skyfall together. And that was a fantastic experience right there. And we continued our party for the next day because we had so much alcohol to go through. And it was great. And uh, in the end, like he, I, I just talked with my friend just before coming here and said, like, the caviar was, that was the the, the, uh, the great experience of the last, uh, of, of that evening. And I think he did award me for my, uh, fan, um, for my, uh, evening planning by giving me uh, as a Christmas present, which was the Lego version of uh, Aston Martin, which was a very sweet thing for him to do. So not the other uh, really expensive one, the uh, cheaper one, but still it was very nice of him. So, so that's, that was the thing. Like, and I think that's, and that's the uh, theme that we are, we are excited to continue with other films, like creating menus, films, and like watching um, pieces from uh, pieces that we know that we really enjoy. So yeah, that's that was our 60th celebration. Nice one. And have you had caviar before? Never in my life. I'm not sure I've even yeah. seen caviar or been in the same room as it, to be honest. No, I've had fish and chips today. But, um, that's the closest <laughs> I think. Uh, I've ca- got. Caviar is quite expensive. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a treat. But like, but I really implore to anyone to eat it. Like those listening who are wondering what caviar tastes like, if you have eaten fish roe, it doesn't taste. At least to me, it doesn't taste anything like it. It tastes like creamy spinach. Like it's a, it's a very kind of strange flavor. Then to me, like which which we found both found just really delightful. 
No, that, no, that's that's really um, interesting, and it's nice um, that you celebrated the sixtieth anniversary um, in that way with your friend. Thank you, Artie. That's been really interesting, and we'll obviously post links to that YouTube video that you've mentioned. It's been great talking to you today, and check out more specials coming up soon with more Bond superfans. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll speak to you soon. Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to The Rating Room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room. Mm-hmm.